Hello and welcome to That One Case, the podcast where lawyers share stories of the cases that influence their careers. My guest today is Robert Brown, founder and owner of the law offices of Robert E. Brown. He is a criminal defence attorney with experience in the state and federal courts. And before he embarked on his legal career, he was a police captain in New York's Chinatown. On today's show, Robert shares his story of one of the most famous criminal cases New York had seen in decades, the trial of Peter Liang. Robert tells us how he managed to get the original charge of manslaughter lowered and how he made his case both inside and outside the courts. So to set the scene, the background is, is that uh, where I live in Staten Island, we had the Eric Garner chokehold case where a grand jury came back and decided not to prosecute the police officer involved. Then you had the Ferguson, Missouri case where once again, the grand jury determined not to prosecute the police officer. So with those in the background, Peter Liang accidentally shoots and kills Akai Gurley, an innocent man, and gets prosecuted and uh, gets indicted by the grand jury. He's the first cop indicted in New York City in a long time uh, and charged with manslaughter for recklessly killing Akai Gurley. The family contacted some community leaders. Um, Peter uh, is Chinese-American. His, his parents were born uh, in China. So the, they, they contacted some Chinese community leaders. I was the captain in the 5th Precinct before I became aware, which is the 5th Precinct is our Chinatown in, in Manhattan. So I had a Chinatown office. I had a lot of connections with the Chinese community and leaders of the Chinese community. So they came to me to, to hire me in order to defend them in the, the, the case for manslaughter. Really interesting. So, yeah, do you, do you find that the, the, the sort of police cases come to you because of your background? Have you worked with a number of folks from the, from the NYPD? Sometimes. You know, I, you would think that I'm always pro-police. You know, that's not the case. I mean, I think I'm pretty objective in that sometimes the police are, are wrong. And I actually handled one of the most high-profile police shooting cases of an unarmed black man where I represented the victim. And a civil case against the police in New York City, and we we settled for a large amount of money. Um, so sometimes I get cases for the police where I represent a police officer, and other times I get cases against the police where I wind up representing people suing the police department in the city. So tell me how how did the how did the case unfold then? So um... he originally used the union attorneys. Um, and then uh, they came to, to me and I actually brought in another attorney that I work with a lot of women named Ray Koshetz, who was also uh, retired from the police department. She was a, a commissioner in the police department, a civilian. And we, the, the judge wouldn't give us any sort of adjournment. He held us to the original trial date and we had to push forward in a very short period of time. We, we only had about two months of preparation and we, we tried the case and, and it was up until that point, uh, before Harvey Weinstein's case broke in New York City, it was the biggest criminal case in New York City in, in decades. And we had, you know, coverage from CNN, MSNBC, uh, every New York Times, Washington Post, every major media outlet was there covering the case. What was that experience like for you? I mean, you, I presume you hadn't had a case that big before. What was that? What was that like? Um, it was certainly stressful. I always say I lost a lot of hair and I got a lot of gray hair uh, during that time period because unlike a civil case, if you lose a, a civil case, people lose money. 
if you lose a, a criminal case, people lose their freedom. And, and I really believe that um, my client, Peter Liang, was not criminally responsible. So it, it, was, it was a very stressful time period. You know, there was a lot of scrutiny pretty much for everything that we did, um, every decision that we made. But, you know, uh, in the end, I think that we did an excellent job. And, you know, it, again, it was a tough, a tough climate, a tough anti-police climate at the time. And we, we did our best to navigate our way through it. What were the what were the keys to the success of it? Do you think like what were the sort of yeah key points that that really ultimately led to the to the uh, to the not guilty verdict? Well, it was not a not guilty verdict, and that's why like you know so one of the things that you ask is like you know your biggest success and and I actually lost the case. Oh right, okay, <laughs> sorry, right. I misunderstood from that. So because he didn't get jail time, right? So like he, he didn't get jail time, right? So so. I, I just was actually speaking to, to somebody who works in the DA's office, and I said, you know, I, I have, I guess, the unfortunate, to, to, to be in the unfortunate position of representing one of the few police officers convicted in a homicide in New York City in, in decades. And, and she said, you know, it had nothing to do with me or my ability, right? That it was just, the, you know, the timing of it and the facts. But basically the jury initially returned the verdict of guilty of manslaughter and of criminal negligent homicide. So for manslaughter, he was facing up to 15 years in jail, my client. So what we did was we worked with the community. We, there was actually demonstrations in favor of my client asking for leniency in not only in New York City, but pretty much in every major city in the United States and in Canada. So we, we had literally, you know, tens of thousands, not hundreds of thousands of people that came out right after the guilty verdict in support of my client. Then we made a motion to set aside the, the, the verdict and the judge did uh, dismiss the top count, which was the manslaughter, and he lowered it to the criminal negligent homicide. So the, the difference is, is in your mental state. So basically, um, manslaughter is reckless, meaning that you perceived the risk of what was going to happen and you consciously disregarded it, where criminal negligence is that you didn't perceive the risk. So he lowered it from manslaughter to criminal negligence, and then he gave him 800 hours of community service and five years probation. Uh, also, one of the things that we did was we gathered tens of thousands. Our estimate was 40,000 letters of support that we that we gave to the to the court. So, you know, we, we and on top of that, I also went to the family of Akai Gurley uh, and got them to ask for no jail time. And I went, and I went to the district attorney uh, and I said, you know, we as a team, not just me, went to the district attorney of Kings County and got him to ask for no jail time. So it made the judge's job a little bit easier in the fact that the victim's family and the prosecutor uh, and 40,000 people with letters of support all asked for no jail time. Yeah, that's incredible. So, I mean, do, do you think it, do you think you would have uh, got that same kind of outcome if if it were not for that, for that sort of, you know, vocal support from the public? I think the public support helped a lot. And I really do think that the post-verdict advocacy with the victim's family and the prosecution helped a great deal to get them all on board. Um, you know, th that 
my, you know, my client was fired from the police department as soon as he was convicted by the jury. So, um, you know, he, he was fired. His life has changed. But, you know, he is still alive. And, uh, you know, my girl is dead. So, you know, it, it, I think the judge tried to balance the, you know, the equities and come up with a fair result. And I think ultimately he did. And how did you feel about it as, as someone that was so deeply involved in the case? How, you know, when it was when it was over, were you able to, you know, get back to sleeping and losing a little less hair, maybe? <laughs> yeah, well, I, I was able to get back to sleeping eventually. But um, I have to say, like, I'm not one of these lawyers that that views this as a victory. I mean, I know there are plenty of lawyers that, that think, hey, if my client didn't go to jail, then I won. Uh, but I lost. I mean, he, he was found guilty. And, and I really don't believe in my heart of hearts that he was guilty. So, you know, that, that I, you know, I, I still think about to this day. But when, when you take emotions out of it, and you step back, and you, you look at the big picture, and, and, you know, you look at the result, I do think it's a fair result. And on all that coverage, what did that do for, for you guys as a firm, for you personally? You know, did that did that have any impact on your life outside of work or 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 on the firm from a business perspective? I wonder. I do think that my firm was growing separate and apart from this. Um, it, it certainly has given me a much higher profile. Uh, but as a general practitioner, right, people think of me as a criminal defense lawyer in a lot of ways because th those are the cases that that get you know notoriety and, and media coverage where the average civil lawsuit you know the, the media could care less about so so you know it, it certainly got me a much higher profile um i, I do think that the next couple of years my, my firm did grow dramatically i'm not sure how much that had to do with it as opposed to other things that i was doing but sure yeah it's always hard to you know nail down exactly what the cause and effect is right and how about personally? Did it have an impact on you personally, do you think, after all this? I mean, it must have been quite a whirlwind, right? It, it, it was. You know, so Peter Liang was a housing cop. And I actually started as a housing cop in Brooklyn, same area. And then, so it was like every road in my life converged at this trial. Like, you know, I was a, a captain in the Chinatown precinct, connections with Chinatown. I was a housing cop. I was a retired NYPD captain. I was a criminal lawyer. Everything was right there. You know, it was waiting for the perfect result of that not guilty verdict, and it just didn't happen. You know, so all roads converge, but the fairy tale ending I was hoping for wasn't there. But still, incredible case. Really cool. Wonderful. Well, I guess my last question was: Is there anything that you learned from that case that that, that you think is particularly kind of uh, yeah important for you? You know. Um, some people said that we shouldn't have had a jury trial. We should have had a judge decide it. Uh, I, I don't think that that's the case. I think in the, the judge made it pretty clear to us in the beginning that, that he thought it was criminal negligent homicide, where ultimately he wound up. So I don't think we risked anything by trying to, to have a jury, uh, you know, to have a jury decide by picking a jury. Uh, I think it was a difficult jury selection uh, in that when you pick a jury for a police case, it's hard because normally as a criminal defense lawyer, you want very liberal people and very open-minded people. When you have a police officer, those same people, many of them don't like the police, right? So it's, it's, it, it was a very challenging task to try and find jurors that we thought were going to, to be good. Um, and 
connecting with those jurors would, was difficult and trying to figure out how they would decide things was difficult, you know? And at the end of the day, we had this crazy thing happen at the end um, where in between conviction and sentencing, a reporter broke a story that one of our jurors was on a different jury panel that same morning. And when he was there, he, he said that um, his father had been incarcerated for a manslaughter. So he should never have been on our jury in the first place, hearing a similar type case. When we questioned him about it, he said no one that was ever close to him was ever incarcerated. So we actually you know, moved to set aside the verdict um, based on that, and the judge denied it. But I could tell you that I think the lesson that I learned is that I'm probably a lot better at reading people now based on that, you know, because he was somebody that he, you know, some, sometimes jurors have hidden agendas and want you to believe that they're going to be on your side. And that's exactly what he was doing. He was going out of his way to try and make us believe that he would be a good juror for us when in reality it was exactly the opposite. He, he had an axe to grind. Stories like that really highlight how much of a case is played out beyond the walls of the courtroom. And as a non-lawyer, I find it incredibly fascinating. My biggest thanks to Robert for sharing his story with us today. If you want to find out more about uh, Robert and the law offices of Robert E. Brown, you can find all the links in the show notes over at thatonecase.com. And if you enjoyed the show, please do share it with someone you think would also find it interesting. All the details on how to follow and listen are over at thatonecase.com. Thanks for joining us and we'll see you again next time as Paul Campson tells us the story of That One Case. <laughs>